Let's uh, pray together, shall we, as we sit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that the Lord Jesus taught that your word is truth and that your truth can set people like us free. And so, Father, we ask now that in this quiet hour you would send your spirit that we might discern your truth and your truth would indeed free us to be the people you call us to be in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, I want to preach to you from that uh, amazing verse in chapter 5 of James, which we just had uh, read to us, where it tells us that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I think in the authorized version of the Bible, which some of you are old enough to remember, it says the fervent, effectual prayer of the righteous man availeth much. Um, you're looking so blankly at me. That actually is English, right? <laughs> um, what I want to talk to you about this morning, and it's a bit like trying to, is something about uh, healing and wholeness, given that um, after communion, those of you who would like some prayer for healing will be invited uh, to receive prayer for that. Um, I, perhaps I should just say to you that um, I have to sadly have to leave this service early, not because anybody has offended me, just to kind of kill speculation. Before I realized the time of the church had changed to 11.30, we'd arranged to meet up with some people at 12.30 and we couldn't meet anyway. So I, I'll be slipping out, but it's nothing personal. Um, Atul Gavanda, in his uh, excellent book called On Being Mortal, compares the death of his grandfather, who died at the age of 109 when he fell off his bicycle in New Delhi and was hit by a truck. Compares that with the death of his aunt, who had emigrated to America and died on her own at the age of 71 in a side room in a hospital with tubes coming out of her every orifice, alone. And he speculates at the beginning of the book, I should explain that he is a world-famous geriatrician. He looks after uh, those of us who are in our senior years. One of his conclusions is the reason why his grandfather lived such an amazing life to the age of 109 was that his social networks ran very deep and were very profuse. Whereas his aunt who'd emigrated into another country had virtually no social networks and ended up dying young and dying alone. So what I want to talk to you about today is something that is a little tricky for us to get our heads around, I think, in our nation where we're all so individualistic, and that is, what is the collective power of a local church in helping people be healed and become whole? 
And when you start to think about becoming whole, it'd be a brave person that would put their hand up this morning and say, I don't need to be healed at all. You may not have a physical complaint, but the chances are you've got your baggage, as we say, from the past that affects you today. All of us needs to be healed in that sense. I think James, when he wrote his epistle, and you'll notice that it seems like, you know, like some of the epistles end with a bit of just kind of closing remarks, you know, give my love to uh, Tychicus, you know, and uh, that kind of comment. No, the last chapter of this epistle is actually the profound focus of the epistle. If we were to read the whole lot, and I know you wouldn't like that, but if we were to read the whole lot out loud, you would see that the first four and a half chapters of the epistle of James are describing something very significant, which I want you to try and catch a vision of this morning, and that is the amazing potential of a local church which is righteous and which is faithful. That is to say, a local church where collectively we are committed to live the life that God wants for us together and faithful in that we start to believe in a way that's different than the way we've previously believed. The fervent, effectual prayer of the faithful man availeth much. The Bible says that if you're not feeling so great, and, and to be fair, there were no GPs at the time. Some of you are speculating, are there any left today? I know that. Were there, any, there were no GPs there. But when you were sick, the natural thing for the Christian community was to invite the elders of the church around who would bring the oil of anointing with them and would pray for you and anoint you. And clearly James had this expectation that when that happens in a righteous community, a church that's seeking to live righteously, James expected that those prayers would be heard and that people would be healed. Is so much one could say. I, I, I sometimes feel that talking about healing and wholeness is like trying to pray, say, pray see Tolstoy's War and Peace in 50 words. But I just want to say two other things by way of introduction. The first is this. I want you to understand that there is something called common grace. There are two kinds of grace in the New Testament. One is saving grace. That's what Paul's on about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when he says, but it is by gr grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, so that none of you can boast. If you're a Christian, you are a Christian entirely at the initiative of God and his gracious approach to you. That he loves you even though in your heart you know you don't deserve that love. <clears throat> but then there is common grace. 
Common grace explains why the Christian church doesn't have the monopoly on doing good in our society. There are lots of people who do great things in our society and we thank God for them. Some of those people are doctors and surgeons. And you might like to ask yourself this question and it's a kind of false dichotomy that's been set up in certain parts of the church. But if you had appendicitis... Would you be more likely to ask the elders of the church to come round and pray for you? Or would you get down the emergency room and get operated on? My suspicion is that most of you would say the second and the really discerning amongst you would say both. Both prayer and, and the doctor's stuff. You remember in John chapter 9, there was this, sounds really awful to us, doesn't it? Especially in kind of COVID times. That uh, Here's a, a blind man and Jesus starts to heal him. Before he heals him, Jesus spits in the mud and mixes up this paste. And then, can you believe this? Puts the paste on the guy's eyes. I mean, I have such a cleanliness obsession. I would be retching at that point. <laughs> right? Why did Jesus do that? It's a great question. And the answer is very simple and very profound. Jesus did that because that was a common, so far as they knew about medicine then, that was a common medical practice. They believed that sliver and certainly alluvial mud had healing properties. What's the meaning of that? It means that Jesus doesn't think that kind of medical practice is in opposition to prayers for healing. Get appendicitis, say your prayers, but make sure you get down the emergency room and get operated on. It's not faith or medicine. And yet I have been in meetings, believe me, when uh, people have been told to give up their medication because to take it is being faithless. As a member of this church, as a matter of fact, who I was at a meeting with him, and the preacher told him uh, that he needed to give up his diabetic medication. I mean, how irresponsible is that? Common grace explains why there is a lot of good that goes on in this world which Christians don't have their hands on, and it also explains why God heals some people who have no faith whatsoever. Directly. I've never forgotten when I was in Slough. There's a place, you know, where they have a bumper sticker that says, um, the best view of Slough is in your rear view mirror. <laughs> and... Um, I ministered there in an amazing little local church. It truly was a spiritual experience being there. Um, but one morning, uh, I got a call from one of my older ladies who said she'd had a call from a lady on her estate who was going for a, uh, cancer, uh, an operation for breast cancer that morning. I had never heard of her. This was, uh, my old lady in the church knew of her because uh, I think... She cleaned for her at some point. 
So we went around there and we laid hands on her and we anointed her and we prayed for her and she goes off to the hospital and she gets there and the the, uh, anesthetist in the room and the surgeon's there all kind of gowned up in his scrubs and he gets his pencil out and starts to draw on her. Apparently that's what they do. And then he says, would you mind, I just want to give you... uh, a final medical examination, a physical examination, just to make sure uh, that we're going to do the right procedure. So he gives her a physical examination, and he goes out of the room, comes back with the consultant. The consultant gives her an examination. He says, where did you say the lump was? She said, in my right breast. He said, there is no lump there. Send her for a scan. By lunchtime, she was home. No operation. Now, I'd like to say we were so pumped up with faith when we prayed for her that that didn't surprise us at all. Truthfully, we were shocked. And as far as we know, this woman had no faith whatsoever. And of course, our great expectation was now she's been healed by God, she's going to throw herself at his feet at the throne of grace and she'll walk with him forevermore. Never saw her again. Never clapped eyes to her. Common grace explains that. God delivers some grace into this wide world that explains a lot of things that in many ways seem inexplicable. So what are we to learn from James chapter 5? The, the first thing that I want to say is, and I can't emphasize this point enough, is that I don't think James believed that trying to heal people was kind of manipulating them. I would regard myself, manipulative behavior, as getting cross with somebody who was ill because they didn't have enough faith. That would be a terrible thing to do. And, you know, um, I, when I've uh, been visiting the States, you know, I've often been jet-lagged and wide awake in the middle of the night flicking through channels on the television and you come to the tele-evangelists. Um, amazingly weird people, as far as I can best see. They want to, you know, they'll tell you stuff like, send in your $100, put your hand on the television screen and receive your healing. Right? I don't know how much money's been wasted doing that, but I would, you know, I mean, clearly that is just very, very... Uh, manipulative and um, the ministry of healing is not about manipulating and um, yeah so let's just go on and think for a moment about James's advice here text is the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective Do you believe that the local church could become a place that kind of accelerated healing and wholeness? A bit like a greenhouse accelerates growth, hopefully, and protects the plants that are within it. Could a church, could you imagine that our church could be like this? 
that the strength of our social network as a congregation could in itself just be a healing thing? Could the church be a microcosm of a healthy and whole society? Which takes me to a very important question, and that is, does our society, by the way it is, make you ill? Uh, Today, writing in the Sunday Times, Rod Little, who I know is strong stuff um, for some of you, but writing there about how in the 70s we had a very different approach. So there was, you know, the 70s was the birth of awfully unhealthy food, sugar-loaded, fat-loaded food. And some of you remember those Finder's crispy pancakes. (laughs) I can see the look of ecstasy on your faces as I even mouth them. And thick crust pizzas. And all that stuff. And yet, back in the day, only one child in 30 had obesity issues. Drive the clock forward to today, it's one in three children who have those issues. We know that mental health is on the increase. Of course this is in part because we're better at diagnosis. Of course it is. There was a time when... um, I can remember in my school, you know, the the kind of thing there was, you eat what you're given. You eat what you're given. There's no kind of messing around saying, well, if you don't like that, you know, have a Mars bar or whatever. You eat what you're given. And I can remember kids in our school, and I can remember children around our table, our own children, and, you know, the message was sit there till you finished it. Uh, We may have completely psychologically damaged them in the cause of that, but somehow it worked. And there is a, well, I mean, there's this very telling verse here, I think. uh, James is, this is, we didn't read this, but it's in the early part of chapter 5. James writes this, before he starts to write about uh, healing. He says, um, the cries, sorry, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. And he could have written that in the Sunday Times today, couldn't he? See, there is something fundamentally unhealthy about our society. Somebody once wrote, to do well in a sick society isn't a big deal, is it? And what would be the antidote to that? Might it be a local church where people were committed to righteous living, where people were committed to faithful uh, discipleship? And that in itself, I think, would just create a kind of microclimate for people to get better. And remember... We all need healing. So I said that, James, um, if you look look at it in terms of chapter 5 being the kind of key um, uh, finale of his letter, then the first 
uh, four chapters talk about seeking wisdom, about persevering faith, uh, about faith in action, about how favoritism should not exist in the church, how the church should not just bang on about faith but should go and do good works for people. Chapter 3, oh my goodness, how many churches does this bring down? Watch your tongue. Eliminate gossip. Chapter 3 also talks about the two kinds of wisdom. The wisdom that leads to wholeness and the wisdom that leads to destruction. Chapter 4, submit to God and be humble. (coughs) Excuse me. If we could make just small changes in the way we are together and understand that discipleship is a collective responsibility. Of course it's about you, but it's about us. It's about us together (coughs) and the way we are with each other. So what could you do Well, you could honestly face up to the question, is my life truly righteous? Or are there behaviours and habits that I keep away from the rest of the world, that I don't talk to anybody about, because basically, if I even start to focus on them, I just feel ashamed. Do you live a righteous life because you have some feel for God's word and therefore you know what God expects of you if you want to walk with him? Maybe you could step up your commitment to read a bit more of that Bible and apply it to your life. And what about faithfulness? How many times have you, have I said amen to a prayer, thinking to ourselves quietly, good luck with that? How can we develop together the kind of faith that was expectant, that truly believed that God, through Christ, in the power of his Holy Spirit, can work through vessels like us and do his work here on earth? Wouldn't that be a different kind of church? Wouldn't that be a church where there was openness and transparency? I note there that James says, confess your sins to one another. You're an ex-Roman Catholic, you know that the only person you're supposed to go and confess your sins to is the priest. No, says James, confess your sins to one another. That church in Slough, I kid you not, we went through a short time, it was just a season that, that happened in our worship, where people did start to confess their sins to one another. And it did get out of hand, if I'm being truthful about it. You know, it's not helpful if <clears throat> there's a man sitting opposite a girl in the group who starts to you know, confess his lust and sin for that particular girl by name. It wasn't great. But there is something about that kind of openness and transparency. You know, we live in a culture, don't we now, where we've got to talk about everything. But we find it most difficult to talk about the things that might 
really be messing us up. And some of you are sitting here saying, well, you know, you've got to be careful with this ministry of healing stuff. You really do, because you can't, you know, let people's expectations down. Well, I get that. It's understandable anxiety. But on the other hand, even when we go to the doctors, the doctor doesn't always make us better, doesn't it? It doesn't mean we won't go back to the doctor ever again. We might think about changing our doctor. Why are we oversensitive about that? Bearing in mind that I've said we're not here to manipulate people. We're here to try and allow God to work through us to deliver healing and wholeness. I can't promise that you will all live to the age of 109 and be cycling through Clevedon when you die. But I would love to believe, love to think, love to see that as a member of this church, you made your contribution to ensure that this house was a house of healing and a house of wholeness where people got better, where people's behaviors were refashioned in the power of the Spirit. And I can't think anybody would be against that. So why don't we go and do? In the name of our amazing God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the people who agreed said together,